In the rapture, God comes for his people, the church. He takes us up. At the second coming, he takes the Old Testament saints out of the grave and he gives them a resurrection body. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the prophetic section of the book of Revelation. Part of the prophecies listed here include the rapture or catching up of that body of believers the Bible calls the church. But there's another event, and it is a different event that the Bible addresses, and that is the second coming. As we continue our message entitled, The Great Day of God Almighty, Dr. Brogy uses 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as a key passage that complements the account of these two events in the Revelation. The second coming and the rapture are two distinct events. Here's a chart that will help us. I scribble these things out. I give them to Steve, and he makes it look all beautiful. Now, at the rapture of the church, Christ comes in the air, whereas at the second coming, he comes to the earth. In 1 Thessalonians 4, across the page, it says, we will meet the Lord in the air. Whereas at the second coming, he comes to the earth. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah said. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Now, is that just a lot of gibberish or is it true? Has it ever happened? No, it hasn't. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into the second coming. He's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to split it in two. There's going to be living water, the Bible says, that will flow all the way to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea in which nothing lives, people will fish at. God's not just blowing a lot of words out of his mouth. Those are literal, actual prophecies that are going to take place. So in the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. The second coming, he comes to the earth. This chart also shows a second difference in terms of who comes to gather each group of persons. Christ comes for his people at the rapture, whereas at the second coming, angels come to take away the lost. The rapture, it says, the Lord himself, verse 16 across the page of chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He is coming for us. But at the second coming, God is going to send his angels to get the lost. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So this chart indicates there's one major difference. There's a third difference, and it concerns where each group of persons are taken. When God comes at the rapture for his people, we're carried up into heaven. But the lost are removed from the earth into a place the Bible calls Hades. The fact that he will meet us in the air, there's an implication that we're going to heaven, but he specifically stated so in the upper room discourse. In John 14, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
However, the second coming, he is not coming to take believers to heaven. He is coming to take unbelievers and to remove them off the earth to set them in that place called Hades. Again, in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, Jesus stated the same truth in the same sermon in Matthew 24, 37. He said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Has nothing to do with the rapture. Hal Lindsey made that up. He was just off. He went to the same seminary I had and went, I went to. And when he, when I was there, so many of the professors were so upset that he ever came up with that invented truth. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Just like in Noah's day, the people who were carried away by the great flood and judgment was an unbelieving world. And the believers, knowing his family were left, at the return of Jesus, all unbelievers will be removed from the earth, and the believers will be left. In the parallel passage in Luke 17, Jesus said, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. In answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, we live in an area in South Carolina where we have turkey buzzards. We have vultures. They're very visible. And when we see them, we know that there is something dead that is going on. Jesus' point is, much as a dead body causes the vultures to gather, so spiritually dead people are consigned to judgment because they are not fit to the kingdom. We're going to study that when we come to Revelation 19, so I'll save it for them. But even so, when Christ returns, the righteous will be left behind. Those tribulation saints who come to faith and survive physically the tribulation, they will be left on the earth, and they'll enter the millennial reign of the Messiah. Just like Noah and his family were left in a brand new refurbished world, even so, God's people who are alive at the second coming, they will enter into a refurbished world where there'll be even a certain amount of harmony in the creation. So the rapture, believers are taken away, and unbelievers are left on the earth. But at the second coming, unbelievers are taken away, and believers are left on the earth. People do not want to be left behind for the rapture, but people who are alive during the tribulation period, they want to be left behind because that means they are believers. Now, this chart also gives us another distinct difference between these two events. At the rapture of the church, Jesus comes before the hour of trial, before the great tribulation, whereas at the second coming, he comes after the hour of trial. We studied already in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Has there ever been an hour of testing that has come upon the whole world? Never, ever, ever, ever. But it's going to happen because Jesus said, and he is going to take out 
those believers. Listen to Matthew chapter 25 and what Jesus says happens at the end of the tribulation. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, this chart also gives us another distinction between these two events, the rapture and the second coming. At the rapture, there are no signs for the rapture. His return is what we call imminent. It could happen at any moment. Whereas the second coming, there are many signs that must be fulfilled for Jesus to come back. The Lord Jesus could have returned in John's lifetime. And the apostles indeed were looking for them. Remember, even before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, some thought maybe the Antichrist would go into that temple and during the tribulation period. Of course, that was decimated, totally torn down, but Jesus said that was going to happen. And so only those who weren't spiritually perceptive would have concluded that. But they believed that God could have come for his people and then any remaining prophecies would be fulfilled thereafter. There are no signs ever that have been needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to catch up his church. He could have come back a week after he ascended into heaven if he so chose. But of course, he didn't so choose because he had a commission to go on the world and to preach the gospel that men and women and boys and girls could come and believe. So the return of Jesus for his church is imminent. But the second coming is a prophecy-driven event. But what is so amazing is that we have been so privileged to see some of the prophecies for the second coming be fulfilled in our very lifetime, which tells you the rapture is that much closer. I've told you many times, in October when you go into Walmart and it's the time of Halloween, the Christmas decorations go up. What does that tell you? It tells you Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. When you begin to see God fulfill prophecy for the second coming, a Sodomite world, which God prophesied for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Lot, Israel regathered into the nation, Russia, one world power, and on and on we could go. When you see prophecy like that being fulfilled in your lifetime, then you know that the catching of the church is that much closer, all right? So there's also, and by the way, there are 19 specific prophecies that are given for the second coming in Matthew chapter 24. We've hit on a number of them already in our study of the Revelation. Also, there's a distinction in these two events in terms of the timing of the resurrection that will take place. The resurrection of the rapture takes place when Christ comes and we meet him in the air. Whereas the resurrection at the second coming takes place after he descends to the earth. Look back at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians 4 and notice the end of verse 16. It says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That happens before the tribulation. God is going to catch up his people. Now, we'll study that again in just a second, so I'll put the pause button on it. But listen to these words in Daniel 12. Listen to what happens at the end of the tribulation. Now, at that time, Michael, you know him, the archangel, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, speaking of Israel, will arise. 
and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like Jesus's words. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. So after the tribulation, Old Testament saints will be resurrected. They right now have a temporary body, just like if you died today, you won't get your resurrection body. You'll have a temporary body, like Moses and Elijah did. They're in the Mount of Transfiguration, like Samuel when he was brought up. It's a temporary body, but you are awaiting the resurrection body. Well, the resurrection of Old Testament saints happens at the end of the seven-year period. In the rapture, God comes for His people, the church. He takes us up. At the second coming, He takes the Old Testament saints out of the grave, and He gives them a resurrection body. There's also another kind of difference between the rapture and the second coming, and it concerns the kind of bodies that those who are alive at each event will receive. Follow this. Now, the rapture of the church, those believers who are alive will receive a glorified body, whereas at the second coming, those believers who are alive, they will continue in their natural body. Now listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When we get to heaven, we'll have resurrection bodies. And Jesus said, in one sense, we will be like the angels. Now, don't say we will be angels. I've had more people say, well, he's an angel now in heaven, and he's got his angel wings. No, you don't become an angel when you die. Angels are angels. People are people. You don't become an angel. But we're like the angels, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When we get our resurrected bodies, we'll be like angels and that we will no longer propagate a race. Angels don't have little angel babies, cherubs. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. However, those who are alive at the second coming will enter the thousand-year reign of Christ in their natural bodies. And the world is going to be rejuvenated. The lion will lay down with the wolf. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed. People will have children because they will be in their natural bodies and they'll live a long extended period of time, much like they did before the time of the great flood. And so what I want you to see in these seven distinctions on this chart is that the rapture and the second coming, they are so different, you cannot make them a single event. Now, of course, the church at Thessalonica, go back to our chart here, the church at Thessalonica, there we go, couldn't create this kind of schematic. Why not? All they had, for the most part, was the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written. 
And nobody, virtually anybody, had a private copy of Scripture. Only the wealthy Christians did. You went to a particular locale, and the public reading of Scripture was not to be neglected because that's where you would hear the Word of God. Since the invention of the printing press, since the completion of the Bible, we can open the Scripture and study it from one end to the other. So they couldn't create the schematic because much of the New Testament had not yet been written. But we can go back, we can read it, we can study it. And so they're trying to understand, what if someone dies before the rapture of that church? When are they going to be resurrected? And will they miss the millennial reign of the Messiah? And so look what he says in chapter 4 and verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, some of your translations say those who are dead, but asleep is better. He's describing someone who's dead, someone who is asleep in death, but dead is a paraphrase, and it's important to retain the original like most good English translations do, those who are asleep, because he's underscoring there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul, that the state of the body is temporary, that God is going to raise it up. So we don't want you, my brethren, to be ignorant about those who are dead asleep so that you may not grieve as do the rest in unbelieving world who have zero hope. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the confession we've just seen in both services that is done at baptism, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The moment you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You're in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so for me to live as Christ, to die is not a loss. It is a great gain. But we are still, those saints in heaven, awaiting the resurrection of their glorified bodies. So he says in verse 15, their body that's in the ground, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Answer to your question, no, they will not miss the millennial reign of the Messiah. In fact, when Jesus comes back, the first to come out of the grave are those who are six feet under. And they need a head start. They're six feet under the ground. We're being taken off the earth. And so they come out of the grave first, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he will bring back with him departed souls and spirits from heaven. He'll reconnect it with the body in the grave. The, those in the grave come out first, and those of us who are living and alive will be caught up, and there'll be a great reunion in the sky. We'll be caught up with them, verse 17, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Wherever Jesus goes, we goes. When he comes back at the second coming, we're going to be right there with him. When he is reigning for a thousand years, we're going to be right there with him. When he creates a new heaven and a new earth, we will be right there with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so in the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink an eye, Jesus is going to take the living off the earth, the dead out of the grave. That concerns the status of their dead loved ones. Now when he comes into chapter 5, he deals with a new aspect. 
with the great day of the Lord, the great day of God the Almighty, as it's called in Revelation 16. And there are two simple principles that are foundational to your understanding the rest of the revelation that I want you to get this morning. First concerns there in your outline, the meaning of the day of the Lord. Let's think for just a few minutes about the meaning of the day of the Lord. Look how chapter 5 opens. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. The word time is the Greek word chronos. We get our word chronology. It refers to a period of time. As to the times and the epics, that's the word kairos, it refers to a point in time. And so as to the general time and the specific time concerning the day of the Lord, you have no need of nothing to be written to you. Why not? Because I've already taught you a whole lot about that. By the way, they weren't alone, though, in asking some of these questions There are people throughout time who've asked these questions concerning the return of Jesus from heaven. Do you remember the apostles there on the, not all of them, but a handful of them, they're on the Mount of Olives and they just left the temple and they're they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. You can see the Temple Mount. I'm on the top of the Mount of Olives and where that camera is across the, that, that, that's the Temple Mount. And uh, they're, they're looking at the glorious, magnificent temple, the Herodian temple, the second temple that was built with Zerubbabel and then remanufactured and built up. And they said, Lord, look at that place. And Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And then they said, well, when is this going to happen? So he, he gives them an immediate fulfillment of prophecy because, you see, a prophet to be counted as a true prophet. And Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's more than a prophet. He's God in human flesh. But he fulfills three Old Testament offices. He's prophet, priest, and king. And to be a true prophet, he's called by Moses the Messiah, the prophet. They ask, are you the prophet to come? Remember, they asked him that in John's gospel. Are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? Are you the Messiah? Well, to be a true prophet, you had to give a short-range prophecy and a long-range prophecy, and he gave many, some immediate that were fulfilled right in his lifetime and some that were fulfilled shortly after his lifetime. He said, look, not one stone is going to remain upon another. And then he begins to unfold the events that will bring about his second coming from heaven. And they say in verse 3 of that chapter, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he proceeded to tell them what would happen. And in the midst of that great discourse, Jesus made this statement. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, Jesus knows now, but he's in his human body. He has laid aside the exercise of some of his divine attributes. We've discussed this already in the Revelation. He knows precisely the time now as the omniscient God in his glorified body. But one important thing you want to leave with this verse is you ought to be skeptical of anyone who's a date setter. Now, I was privileged to study under one of the greatest eschatologists, some think in the last 200 years, J. Dwight Pentecost. And Dr. Pentecost would often tell us, those who leave little room for mystery leave much room for mistake. In other words, people who have it so nailed down because it sells books like setting a date, 
And there are foolish Americans who buy books, who do all kinds of crazy things because someone said, well, Jesus is coming on September the 14th, or he's coming on this date or that date. They are contradicting the plain teaching of Scripture. And the devil loves that because it brings great shame and discredit to pastors like myself and to Christians like you that believe the Bible. Remember just before Jesus left for heaven, he's on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him again about his return. And he said, it is not for you to know the times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The times and epics for the second coming, you don't know. Now, the times and epics for the day of the Lord is a separate event, you do know. So go back here to chapter 5, verse 1. As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because Paul had given some previous instruction. So let's think about the times and the epics of the day of the Lord. Uh, let's for a moment first consider the length of the day. What do we mean by the day of the Lord? Let's think for a moment just about the length of the day. When you see the word day in the Bible, it's used in principally one of three ways. Sometimes it's used of daylight. Right now I can see the daylight through that back door. It's daylight right now. It's daytime. It's day. So sometimes it just refers to the light of the day, that time between dawn and sunset. Sometimes it's used in the Bible to refer to a literal 24-hour time frame. And so in the days of creation, one day, two day, three day, and so forth, he's talking about literal 24-hour days in which the world was created. Now, some Christian people, they are almost embarrassed by that, and they want to impregnate science into the text of Genesis 1. And they say, well, the days aren't literal 24-hour days, but they're long days of millions of years, or they are 24-hour days, but there's huge gaps of time between each and every day. But every time in the Hebrew Bible where a number is attached to the word yom or day, 410 times, it refers to a literal 24-hour day. And even the most liberal of scholars don't debate that. But some reason when you come to Genesis 1, we don't want to make it 24-hour days. We want to make it long geologic ages of millions of years. But my friend, that undermines the gospel because now you have death and disease and thorns and suffering before the fall, where the Bible says it was as a result of the fall. Hey, look, have you ever asked yourself why God made the world in six days? Why didn't he make the world in six hours or six minutes or no time at all? Well, I don't have to wonder. Moses gave me the answer in Exodus 20. Listen to this. Remember the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days, and now Moses gives us divine commentary by the Holy Spirit who is writing through his pen, men of old moved by the Spirit of God, he gives us divine commentary on how he understood the days of creation. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and make it whole, made it holy. Now think about it. The concept of a year being approximately 365 days, 
doesn't necessarily come from the Bible. You can get that from science, from information outside of the Bible, because it takes approximately 365 days for the earth to make a full loop all the way around the sun. The concept of a 24-hour day can come from outside of the Bible because it takes approximately 24 hours for the earth to make a full spin on its axis. But the concept of a week comes only from the Bible. God didn't make the world in six days or six seconds or six hours. He made it in six days. Why? Just send a message that we need one and seven to rest. When we conclude our message tomorrow, we'll further examine God's definition of days, as well as looking at the distinction between the rapture and the day of the Lord. To listen to this study in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV42. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you can help or would like more information, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the great day of God Almighty. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.